welcome to the Back to the Pavilion podcast. This week saw another landmark as we passed over 3,000 listens. Thank you to all of you who have and everyone who retweets, shares and helps spread the word about the Back to the Pavilion podcast. Today I speak to an Essex stalwart who played over 250 matches in his career, taking nearly 600 wickets in the process. Since then he's been a coach, a broadcaster, after dinner speaker and tour guide. He's also his son's biggest fan and supporter. So join me as we welcome Don Topley back to the pavilion. I'm incredibly lucky to have had a, an entire life in the game and still in the game and hopefully will be post-COVID. But it all started for me, probably uh, my father was a very keen sportsman. He was uh, a naval officer, um, enjoyed playing, representing the Navy and the combined services all over the world. So he was a pretty tasty sportsman, but probably the greatest influence uh, on my youth was my older brother, Peter, who played for Kent. He was understudy to Derek Underwood. So he only got a little look in, really, uh, when Derek, uh, deadly Derek Underwood was away on test matches. But uh, Peter was a very talented cricketer, um, possibly suffered with a bit more nerves than, than I did, and perhaps Reese does. So, uh, yeah, no, I was very lucky to have uh, the influences of certainly my brother. And you, I mean... How did you get that, that first gig with you, with a county? Was it straight into well, the county setup or? No, not at all. I had a lot of hard knocks or a lot of no's. Uh, I was probably a very normal uh, attempting professional cricketer. But if I go back, I actually played for Kent under 11s as a kid. So I had a little bit of ability uh, as a bowler. And then my parents moved to Norfolk. And funny enough, Norfolk plays quite a lot of cricket, funny enough. It, it, it did back in the 1970s and 80s. But in, uh, and I went to school in Suffolk. So I played for Suffolk schools and Norfolk Young Amateurs. And then I joined the MCC Young Cricketers. I wasn't um, sort of born with a silver spoon. I didn't have an immediate pathway. I wasn't good enough. So uh, I went to the Lord's Graustaff and uh, joined Don Wilson's boys. He was a marvellous MCC coach and I, I had trials. I obviously became better as a cricketer, all-round cricketer, uh, over that period of three or four years at Lord's. But I would trial and you would play against the county second 11s and you're obviously always on trial. And I always recommend that to people to make sure that they're aware wherever they're playing, they're always on trial if you're playing against a second team because people will make a judgment of you. And so I, I trialled for, my first game was for Kent twos because I was born and went, you know, went to primary school in Kent and played for Kent under 11s, played with Eldine Baptiste, Alan Elam, Colin Page was the coach. Uh, Hinks, uh, Cowdery, there was a, a, a decent second 11 side at Kent. And I can remember Eldine Baptiste telling Colin Page, the coach, man, if you butt me at four, I get you double hundred. And he did, he batted him at four and he got a double hundred at the Oval. So uh, I remember that, but Kent weren't so interested. I trialled at Surrey for a season, Glamorgan, Gloucester, Northants, Sussex, Obviously, if I was at Lords under Don Wilson, Middlesex are keeping an eye on you as well. 
And eventually Essex took a little bit of interest, but I had a season for Surrey and played one game, first team for Surrey. Um, and that was against Cambridge University, where I was captained by Jeff Howarth, Alex Stewart played, Pat Pocock. It was a super side. I, re I uh, opened the bowling with Anthony Gray, um, played one game for Surrey. They were still interested. They had me for the season on trial. But beneath their noses, Essex came and picked me up because I had pre-season with them where I gave up the whole of... Uh, not March, but maybe three weeks of April, where I bowled at Essex in their pre-season nets and, and performed well. And they signed me um, as a replacement for the ageing Stuart Turner. What a cricket Stuart Turner was. There were, there were lesser cricketers than Stuart Turner played for England, you know. There's always those players, aren't there, who everyone looks and goes, how haven't they played for England? Graham Napier, there's another one. Indeed, yeah, and you, know, you look at you know Darren Stevens, James yeah. Hildreth, Sam Northeast, yeah, all these players in the modern era who who you know I think had they played in the eighties and early nineties probably would have played for England. Interesting because we used to chop and change a lot, didn't they? The England selectors and so many players were uh, how can I say one Test wonders or pick for a certain race course special horses. Yeah, that's right. So I joined Essex and um, uh, I, was, I was incredibly proud um, and I used to pinch myself when I used to go into that dressing room because I played with three England uh, captains, you know, Keith Fletcher, he was captain for half of my career, obviously Graham Gooch and obviously I played uh, with Nasser as well, but obviously not when he became England captain. But uh, there were, it was a crack inside. If I go back to the old um, side, I mentioned Stuart Turner, John Lever, Brian Hardy, Kenny McEwen, uh, Mark Waugh. I would pay to watch Ken McEwen and Mark Waugh. For me, they, those two particular overseas players were so easy on the eye. They made the game of cricket easy, whether it was batting, playing shots off their hips, through the covers, whether they were taking, they were, you know, taking miraculous catches made look easy at slip, uh, thankfully off me at times as well. Um, and they, and they, Mark Wall made bowling, whether it was seamers or whether it was spin bowling, Mark Wall made the game look very easy, very easy on the eye. They were, you know, they were pretty, pretty well my, my playing heroes in the dressing room as well, those two. Uh, David Ackfield, Raymond East, very funny man, great person, great character. David East was a wicketkeeper at the front end of my career. Mike Garner was a wicketkeeper at the end of my career. Both wicketkeepers weren't of international standard, but they contributed enormously to a star-studded side. Salim Malik was an overseas player. Ma um, Michael Kaspovich. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we had some phenomenal, and, and of course, I played with Alan Border for two seasons at Essex as well. He can't have been fun to bowl to in the Nets. No, he wasn't. You know what, you just reminded me when you mentioned that. Um, he didn't wear a helmet, you know, that season until he got hit by Tony Merrick at Edgebaston against Warwickshire. Um, and he was, I think he was on it too early. He pulled, went to hook him, and he got, get hooked, he got hit on the uh, left-hand side of his head and his ear and his temple. 
um, and he had about 17 stitches. Um, but he wore a helmet in the second innings and scored a, a phenomenal knock in that second innings. Alan Border probably didn't score as many hundreds as he would have hoped. He did score hundreds. But what he did do, he had match-winning innings of 70s and 80s on dodgy wickets. And I think he scored runs up at Chesterfield one year uh, against Derbyshire. Um, but Alan Border was a phenomenal player who got uh, hard runs when it mattered. He really did. I mean, that team that you played in the 80s and 90s, you, you were, you know, a little reminiscent of, of the Essex side at the moment, winning trophies for fun. Do you, is there a moment that really stands out for you? Oh, we never said never. You know, we could win games from amazing positions. We were a bit like West Ham as well, you know. We would suffer some poor defeats. Um, but don't forget, in that era when when Surrey last season lost a lot of cricketers to England or injury, back in the day, that, that fine Essex era, we often lost four players to test matches. Could be Lever, Foster, Pringle, Charles, Gooch, Fletcher. Um, you know, we lost cricketers. So we always relied on a decent squad. Um, I'm probably a little bit biased. We, we were the early, early side, early in cricket to probably, and of course we started with three-day cricket, then moved to four-day cricket in the 90s. So we probably scored runs quickly, Gooch at the top, yep. Hardy, uh, Paul Pritchard, Fletcher, McEwen, War, whoever it was, we scored our runs quite quickly which allowed our bowlers to take the wickets then. We had time to, to collect 20 wickets. And we had plenty of bowlers for occasions. We had seamers like Derek Pringle, Stuart Turner. We had swing bowlers like uh, Neil Foster could swing it and seam it. He, Neil Foster was a very fine bowler. John Lever, lots have been written about him. He would bowl loads of overs. He would swing the ball, swing the old ball, keep coming in. What a marvellous uh, left-arm swing bowler he was. Um, and then we had spinners like uh, in the early days, Ackfield East. And then in the latter years of my career, we had East and Charles. And we also had a little bit of jo Jeff Miller who came to Essex. He was in fact my roommate for his three years at Essex. When I was getting up in the morning, he was coming in. <gasps> Is that, is that age and experience or is that... Um... Yeah, no, he, he was a... He, I mean, he became a magnificent chairman of selectors, didn't he? And he came, came to Essex after a career at uh, Derbyshire. And he was just a joy to play with. Probably wasn't at his best at Essex. He would fully agree with that. But uh, he was just a great man and a great man for the dressing room. Good fun. And I have to say, a wonderful roommate for me. Um, I mean, you took sort of nearly 600 first-team wickets. Were you ever feeling like you were close to England selection? Yeah, no, not really. I probably, I had a lot of confidence and I could bowl well at good players. That's, that's a great asset. Not everybody has it. Some people get intimidated about bowling at Gooch or Viv Richards or, or some David Gower. Um, I never ever had the belief I could play for England. I used to pinch myself going into my Essex dressing room that there was Gooch, Fletcher, 
Foster, Lever, Pringle, uh, you know, the, uh, Kaspovich or War or Salim Malik. He was a fine player, you know, the Pakistan, former Pakistan um, captain. But I never had the confidence that I could play up a notch a level. 1989, I took about 90 wickets, 89 wickets. And I thought I might have, I did get a mention in papers as a sort of a left wing choice for a one day international. But in reality, I probably wasn't quite good enough. And secondly, I didn't have international confidence of my own ability. So probably playing uh, top level first class cricket for Essex as I did was probably my ceiling. And throughout your career, how much did you have an eye on your career after playing? Um, I tend to think I didn't until I, uh, until I got involved in some coaching. I would go abroad most winters. Mm. I'd either go to South Africa, Australia or Zimbabwe. Um, and I, I, at the age of 26, I was in the middle of my own career. I took on a, a role for, for sort of three, three, three winters in Zimbabwe, where I was their international uh, head coach, which culminated in taking them to the World Cup in Australasia, the first white ball World Cup, the, the, the Australasia 1992. It was a cracking World Cup. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of Essex involvement, border, war, both wars, actually. Steve War had, a, had an SO scholarship with... Uh, at Essex, so I played with both Steve and Mark. Alan Border, Neil, and then there was Derek Pringle, uh, Paul Pritchard, S Salim Malik. Um, um, and for me, going to that World Cup, again, I pinched myself. I was, you know, the head coach of Zimbabwe, which they went on to beat uh, uh, Zimbabwe at Albury Wodonga. We'll perhaps talk about that in a minute. It's a cracking story. But um, from my point of view, it was about that time I was thinking, I like coaching. Yeah. I've always enjoyed um, having fun with children, you know, whether it's playing a bit of cricket, whether it was my own kids mucking around with them, playing silly games. I've always enjoyed and I've always felt that I've been, I can communicate. Not everybody has, has that ability. Uh, can infuse children and I've always felt that I've had that so I probably think it was a natural progression that I was always thinking I like coaching I got all my badges in the old style in the old NCA I became a staff coach by the age of 21 so only in recent years have I taken my level three um, but I was a I, I could coach coaches how to coach if you know what I mean yep. in the old-fashioned money back in the 80s and 90s and in the 2000s and I've always enjoyed if people can enjoy the game of cricket half as much as I have and I've had the opportunity over my life then I think I can offer them a fantastic uh, bit of fun and you mentioned there you know working with young people since you've retired from playing you've you know you spent many many years as a teacher does that give you the you know that same enjoyment yeah it has actually uh, it, it really has uh, once again if i can introduce a social life to to these young uh, boys and girls who are going to go on and play uh, 
Uh, it could be secretary of a club, it could be the groundsman, it could be the scorer, it could be just the players. You know, if they're going to have a, half as much fun as I've had in my lifetime with the game of cricket, then I know they're going to enjoy it. And, you know, how can I say this diplomatically? When you're at school, you're, these young people are not going to enjoy any alcohol. <laughs> so the boundaries of their cricket are quite strict and limited, understandably so. But when they go into the outdoor world and work at, in a bank or on a bus or on the tube or a, become a teacher themselves, then they will know how to enjoy their weekends. And it's a, a release of their, perhaps their jobs or their fun or an avenue for them to enjoy their lives. And so, I mean, like you said, you, you were coaching Zimbabwe before you finished playing. And, and well, during the middle of my career. Mm, so you, you'd clearly sort of done that planning, that preparation. Was it important for you to make sure you had something after your playing career? Yeah, I was released at the age of 30. I'd been around a little while. I could have gone on. I'd had a few issues with my legs. Um, I don't think people realise that actually bowling isn't so good for your body. Unless you actually bowl yourselves, you, you know. But uh, I was struggling a little bit with my leg and I, I decided that I wouldn't look elsewhere. I had a couple of chats with different counties. But I, I did move into teaching um, and I was very fortunate that there was a spot available and it, it fitted a jigsaw really for a couple of years just prior to retiring. So after Zimbabwe, um, which I must tell you was a, a great story about the World Cup in Albrecht-Jonga, yeah. where England played against Graham Gooch's England, my boss. So anyway, if you look at your books, you'll see that Zimbabwe won the toss. We decided to bat because the wicket wasn't going to get any worse at Albury Wodonga. And Graham Gooch's side bowled us out. We didn't bat that well, but the wicket wasn't great. We got bowled out for 134. And in this pavilion that resembled perhaps um, a bit of an MFI type pavilion, the England boys were throwing bread rolls at me. Dermot Reeve, my old roommate at Lord's. There was Derek Pringle, Botham, Hick. That was all quite funny. And uh, then we had a huddle at third man on the boundary as, as Ian Botham and, and Graham Gooch came out to bat and they wandered down the stairs. And I turned to Graham Gooch and the thing I said to him, which I said every day of my career when I was playing for Essex was, as he would go out to bat, I'd say, good luck, Graham. And as he came down the stairs, I went, good luck, Gray. And I thought to myself, why did I just say that? He's the captain of England. I'm in charge of Zimbabwe. I don't want to beat him. Anyway, he goes out. And I look at the field at third man on the boundary. And I move third man squarer because Gooch plays square of the wicket well. Fine leg's got to go squarer. Moved him a bit squarer. And the umpire calls play. And our chicken farmer, Ed O'Brandis, runs into bowls and bowls a full toss to Gooch. Gooch misses it, hits him on the bad. They go up, umpire gives it. So Gooch is now hand-dog expression, as you know he does. And he wanders off towards me at third man, where the gate and the picket, uh, the picket fence was. So the steward runs down, runs down the steps. And uh, he's about to open the, Gooch to the gate to Graham Gooch. And I said, excuse me, 
I'll do this, this is mine. So as I open the gate and Gooch walks through, I look at him and just say, bad luck, Gray. <laughs> so he goes up the stairs. If you look in your history books, it will say, Zimbabwe bowled England out for 125. And England, uh, England lost by nine runs to Zimbabwe. The upset of the tournament. We go upstairs straight away to, to meet the then Richie Benno. Good, good day, everybody, and welcome to Aubrey Wodonga. The might of England have fallen to the minnows of Zimbabwe. In the studio, we've got Graham Gooch, the defeated captain, defeated manager, Mickey Stewart. The, uh, unfortunately, Dave Howden's being made a free man of Harari. So he's not here, but we have Dan Topley from uh, the Zimbabwe coach. Tell me, Don, remarkable performance. Will you be reminding your captain, your boss back home at Essex County Cricket Club about this most marvellous performance here at Albury Wodonga? Well, Richie, if there were 200 days in the English summer, this coming summer, I shall no doubt mention it to Gucci 198 times. And there was a deathly hush and Gucci says, no, you won't because I'm not coming to watch any Essex second team cricket. He was a man of his word. Yeah. <laughs> he was a man of his word. No, great memories being in charge of Zimbabwe and coaching for me was probably an area I, I wanted to go. I was qualified. I'd done an, an incredible amount of coaching in South Africa in the winters because I used to go abroad every winter. So be it in Johannesburg or in Natal or uh, Greekland West. Uh, I played there with Andy Moles and Derbyshire's old Fred Swarbrick. He was a player coach. Um, so, no, I was going to go into teaching. And, and to be honest, it was an opportunity as well. Uh, as a perk, as you'll appreciate, uh, I was able to get the two kids, Hannah and Reese, educated at an independent school, a little something more affordable for me. And then... A lot of people, I, I, a lot of, uh, I spoke to Alex Tudor and he talked about um, working with those young people and seeing them develop gives them the same buzz as taking a wicket or taking a fifer. Would you say that was similar for you? Yeah, it is. Definitely. Definitely. I, I can't argue with that at all. I, I, um, I don't know if I ever really thought it was a job. It was just great fun and I was so lucky to be able to do it. 23 years. So I came into contact with a lot of children over those 23 years. There was a myself and my uh, number two, a chap called Don Hawkley, who was the cricket uh, master in charge when I was a pupil. So he saw both two Topleys come through. Um, but he was my number two and he was a great uh, chap to lean on. And he was a great friend. Uh, uh, as a cricket coach um, so we did it for 23 years it was quite funny actually when you talk about Alex Tudor and if you look over in the east of England how many former Essex cricketers are involved Graham Napier he now does the job you did cricketer, doesn't he he takes his, he that was my last job was to fill my place at the Royal Hospital School he I was able to offer him the job really so that was a great lead we've got John Lever who's done it Ray East at Ipswich School Brian Hardy at Brentwood Jake Mickleborough is there now so uh, Felster's got Jason Gallion so the whole of the eastern side here have got distinguished former credible professionals involved in their cricket and that's probably the way to go 
Um, but one one thing it was quite interesting that you know we all have um, we all chat with the line manager or the headmaster, and, and we have these appraisals. I think in every walk of life today, aren't they? They conjure up an enormous evil sometimes, don't they? Appraisals. But I remember going to one appraisal where it it was it was deemed uh, half a criticism. Um, and of course, when you just talked about Alex Tudor, this is this is so so true. And I had to remind myself this time and time again. I I am a badger at cricket. If you ask my other half, you ask my kids, I am a complete cricket badger. But when I was in, in my post for 23 years at school, I would often have to remind myself because I was reminded initially that not everybody shares my enthusiasm for the game. Now, there's me going, why are these kids not at practice again? Or why are they not doing the extra half hour at the nets tonight? Hang on, they don't. These kids are recreational cricketers. Yes, we've got one or two cricketers who are going to be on a pathway, a county pathway, have ambitions of playing professional cricket. But generally speaking, most of those cricketers, 99.9%, .9 might not have as much enthusiasm as I have. And I must understand that and just perhaps slow down with them occasionally because they don't have to share my enthusiasm <laughs> I, I suffer with the same thing you know I, I will happily talk cricket to anyone and and you know i'd go and watch derbyshire thirds against leicestershire fourths for four days and be more than happy and i sometimes have to be reminded that not everyone has that that same passion but i think you know as giving over that passion to our great game I think is so important to to help grow the game isn't it I mean and you do work with with the minor counties and getting young people involved in that T tell me about your, your minor counties children's yes. tournament well do you know what it's really important to me and I'm really really proud once again I travel around the world with with the job with my sort of role in the winter and uh, I come across people who, oh, my grandson came to your festival. In, back in 1999, that's a long time ago, I started a six-team event uh, involving under-12s and under-11s. Today, it's 22 teams over the two weeks at both under-11s and under-12s. And they're all minor counties except for the Netherlands. So they all come to me. Uh, Cumbria, Northumberland, Lincolnshire, I'm working my way down Norfolk, Suffolk, Cambridgeshire, Bucks, uh, uh, Hearts, Hunts, um, 22 teams come and they descend on the Royal Hospital at School at Suffolk and obviously to them it's slightly an income generator because the school is idle in the summer holidays so we bring in a little bit of income but we make sure it's value for money and 22 quality cricketers come down. Invariably, their parents and grandparents have come down for their summer holiday, as uh, cricketing fraternity do. They, sh you know, your su my summer holiday uh, during Reese's uh, teenage years was a summer holiday in England somewhere watching cricket, and it was delightful with like-minded parents. So it was, it was, it's great fun watching them play a proper serious game of cricket at the age of 11 and 12 and enthusing them is, isn't any issue at all and the parents love it 
the kids love it so they all board they all stay at the royal hospital school we've got uh, we've actually got eight wickets five grass wickets and three astro wickets but we only use six uh, wickets together so we have 12 12 teams in one week and 10 teams in the other um, and it's just it's just something that i really love seeing proper cricketers playing good level cricket on good wickets with a good ball that swings you know um that's really really important and all the pitches are together at the royal hospital school so you just hear an appeal on that pitch then that pitch and then applause and then a yelp it's just it's just wonderful to see so we're very very proud of it we're, we've run it over 20 years it's probably one of the best festivals on the circuit um and i'm pleased to say the three England cricketers have not come through it, but they played in it in their early years. And I'm going to give you some stats in a minute. The likes of uh, Liam Livingston, Ollie Stone and Reese Topley all started their junior careers in Norfolk, Suffolk and, Lit and Cumbria. But if you add another four cricketers who have been selected to go to uh, um, South Africa next week, and that is Ben Stokes, Liam Livingston, Reese Topley, Oliver Stone, Tom Helm, Mark Wood, and Lewis Gregory have all started their careers in minor counties. And when you add Alex Hales, James Vince, Liam Dawson, and Craig Overton, that's 11 current England cricketers started their careers playing age group in minor counties. Now that should tell you how significant minor counties is, or they call it today national counties. But I still think of it as minor counties as opposed to first class. Then I think you can see not only that the pyramid system works within the professional uh, pathway, but also how important the ECB should see minor counties because in minor counties you you come from derbyshire so next door is staffordshire the staffordshire under 11 top cricketer will be as good as derbyshire's but the difference is in derbyshire they will have more resources they'll probably have a better facility which they don't have to pay for like an indoor facility where at staffordshire they will have to pay the for the resources but they'll have more coaching at derbyshire and there's a probably a slightly densely, more densely populated, i.e. slightly greater depth of cricketer in Derbyshire. The same is with Essex compared to neighbouring Suffolk. But the point I'm trying to say is minor counties still produce some fine young cricketers. And I've just named you 11 current England internationals, of which seven will be on show in South Africa. Uh, that started their careers and their age group careers. I mean, Mark Wood played for Northumberland from the age of 10 to 16. That speaks volumes. So well done to the minor counties. I mean, you mentioned South Africa there. Are you off to South Africa with one of your other jobs this winter? Oh, Have no. I just hit a sore point? COVID, COVID. Like you, Hugh, I'm going to be watching the cricket and indeed my son on, uh, on the TV. So I'll be rooting for him on, on there, both uh, the, the, all the family will and friends. Um, normally, yes, you, you're absolutely right. Normally, well, this, this winter, I was planned to be in India for the five tests because that would have been quite popular. And also the T20 in Australia. Um, I went to the T20 in India uh, 
in 2016 when my son was involved in that runners-up World Cup squad under Owen Morgan. And, uh, and I remember, I can remember sitting next to Owen Morgan's uh, fiance at the time, then his, his now wife, mm. um, and she was getting all nervous in that uh, penultimate over bar, brilliantly bowled by Chris Jordan, only went for seven yeah. in, in Calcutta. And she said, I mean, what do you think? Well, I said, we've got this in the bag. I, you know, I've been saying I'd put my money on a bet to, to say that England would win. And then in that last over, which was bowled by Ben Stokes, um, I said to, to, to his now wife, I said, uh, I'll put my mortgage on. We've won this. And of course we didn't. And I've been living in the uh, shed since. <laughs> No, that was a that was a great evening. I can remember we celebrated in the evening. We did after a, a good campaign, and obviously I was there as a parent. And uh, there was uh, the only two parents at the England after match party. Okay, we lost. Was um, Craig Roy, Jason Roy's dad, and myself. And there was all the wives and uh, things like that. And we had we could hear the West Indies who were celebrating. Uh, their great achievement two floors down in in the champions room the runners-up in the hotel in Calcutta were in this beautiful parkade stroke pan wooden panelled room where we were celebrating coming or commiserating coming runners-up and uh, Ben Stokes came and sat next to me and it it, it had a, you know it was late into the night <laughs> He might have had a, a couple, and rightly, rightly so. And he came up to me and said, Why, hey, Thomas, he says, what do you reckon, Ben? And uh, I said, oh, Ben, uh, I'm just so sorry. And I wanted to come out and put my arms around you after, you know, we all know that he went for four sixes. So I said, I wanted to put my arms around you. And he said, I said, I felt, I, just to break the ice and make conversation, I said, I can remember a game at Taunton when I was playing for, for Essex against Somerset and they needed 16 and they got them. And he looked at me, he said, at Taunton? I said, yes. He said, but it weren't in front of, in front of billions of people, was it? I went, no, it wasn't. <laughs> Not a lot I could say. So I was trying to be helpful to him, but uh, yeah, I, I felt so sorry for him. I just kept looking at him when he'd gone for those four sixes. I thought it was a brave decision by, by the captain in many respects to make him bowl. I mean, he bowled a couple, one earlier in the, in the innings, but then he came back to bowl six balls when he was slightly cold. You always want an over to fire in your Yorker, to feel for your Yorker. You want a few deliveries, but he didn't have it, did he? No. But it was, uh, I mean, that game at Kolkata will be remembered. And it, I mean, England did so well. Do you remember root bowling? bowling first couple of overs and got Gale out and got someone else out and it was just going our way. And like and then, you say, Chris Jordan, I'm a great fan of bowling, your best death bowler in the 19th over to, you know, hopefully put it out of out of sight. And like you, I thought, you know, 19, 19 off and over, they're never going to do that. But Carlos Brathwaite, remember the name, came in yeah. and did that and... Incredible yeah. hitting, wasn't it? Incredible oh. hitting. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, okay, Stokes got length. I mean, I think today, compared to my era, that is one area that's changed. Mm. I really do. 
Uh, we used to bowl Yorkers. John Lever did. Derek Pringle was quite good. Neil Foster wasn't such a good Yorker bowler in uh, white ball, limited over list A cricket. Um, but today, it's not just bowling a length. You've got to get the line right as well. So, you know, you've got... In, in my day, you could play around with a little bit of the X or the Y axis. Today, there is no margin. There is very small margin. You've got about six inches by six inches to get it right, really. Um, and you've got to decide whether your Yorker's going to be off stump, middle stump, leg stump. Um, and, I, I, and I think batsmen use the crease so much more. They use 360 degrees, the ramps and things like that. It, um, to be a bowler today, and of course, I look upon my era, and I have the opportunity, and I'm very lucky that I can look upon my son's era, and we talk about it relentlessly. As I say, I'm a badger, and probably haven't always differentiated the difference between dad and a cricket coach, or his cricket coach. Um, and sometimes I might get it right, I might get it slightly wrong, and sometimes he might want dad, and today I was the cricket coach. Um, yeah, yeah, um, that, that's happened, that comes with the territory, and I think you have to understand that you can get the odd day wrong, and I, I do, but we have quite a good cricket relationship, very good cricket relationship, in that he talked to me, confides with me, and we talk about, you know, we're, we're able to talk cricket at the table, we do, you know, the salt and pepper pop move, the tomato ketchup suddenly at fine leggy comes into the inner ring. You know, that kind of thing has happened since he was nine. So, um, yeah, it's an interesting relationship being dad and a coach. Do you have, you know, do you give him lots of help, advice and guidance on his career? You know, he's suffered lots of injuries. So at any point you yeah. said to him, you know, plan for you. Yeah. When... Well, Reese has had suffered five stress fractures, of which there are only two different stress fractures. He's had one in L3, which is gone again, and he's had one at L4, which has gone two or three times. He's had five in all, but um, when he had his first one, I never suffered uh, a stress fracture in my career. Um, I didn't. Neil Foster did. Perhaps John Lever did. Uh, I didn't. My son would always say I was never quick enough to sustain one. But um, uh, when he suffered his first one, which he suffered quite late as a cricketer, he suffered it on the England Lions trip to Australia in 2000, I think it was 13. Um, he suffered it out there um, because I, I think some people don't realise it. As a, as a young cricketer, you've got to work out what is pain, what is an injury, on what is normal and you're going to say you know people bowl non-bowlers will say what do you mean normal pain bowling proper professional fast bowling even club bowling on a saturday is painful and when you wake up on sunday in the professional game you've got to go and do it again you've got another 20 overs to bowl and uh, and i think he struggled when he had his first stress fracture and I sympathised with him but I remember a fateful day when he rang me up from the gym having had another test on his second stress fracture which had reopened up and I remember he ringing me up from the gym 
and uh, I couldn't, I struggled to, to uh, commiserate with him. I know that sounds terrible. I just didn't know what to say, where to turn, because he'd had a, a reopening of a stress fracture and it was horrible because his season had hardly started and it finished. And there was so much and he was, he was sort of involved with England. And that was heartbreaking for him. And it was heartbreaking for mum and dad as well. And of course, all we can do is be there. Um, he suffered five stress fractures. So I've got a huge amount of respect for, for him in that he's come back five times. I don't know too many bowlers in history who would keep coming back, um, you know, five times. He even su sustained, well, he had endured a, a, a big back operation where he had a, a, a 40, 40 millimeter pin put through L4. The only bit of good news on the day of his operation is the um, surgeon, Leslie Wilson in, in London, which was, which was conducted next door to Lords at the Wellington Hospital. He was so enthusiastic. He said, you know what? I've never worked in such a large spine, a large back. He said, I had so much space. It was a delight. <laughs> um, because it, people don't realise, Reese is six foot eight and he has a very long back. Um, so that was a bit of good news from the, 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 the surgeon that day. But for him mentally to keep coming back and go back through the rehab, the injury layoff, um, is, is, is quite remarkable and a, and a great credit to him in to bounce back ability. That's, uh, you know, you've got to have a big back, a big heart in, in uh, bowling. You've got to have a huge heart and you've got to have tremendous bounce back ability for any bowler, not just restopping, but for any bowler, because you, not every day is a good day. How relieved were you to see him back on the field this summer playing for England again? Well, he chose, he opted to have that operation in 2018 and it was a long, it was just over a year before he came back and, and he had a cracking time at Sussex. Sussex were very good to him. Reese was also very good to Sussex. And uh, his first game back actually, which was a televised game between Sussex and Hampshire called the El Clasico. It was on t TV and Julia, his mum and I, were there and we were nervous and I know he was nervous but he he got three wickets in over that included all not wasn't a hat-trick but he got uh, Annarine Donald James Vince first ball and and also um, who did he get out somebody else out third ball fourth ball so he got three wickets in an over finished up with four for 16 against his old side and he really really enjoyed that and he had a cracking time at Sussex where he was spearheaded their um, T20 campaign. They were a tremendous side with Rashid Khan, Chris Jordan, Jofra Archer, uh, David Visa. They had a, a Tamal Mills. They had a phenomenal bowling lineup. They were probably one of the best bowling T20 sides I think you could muster. Yeah. Uh, but that was Sussex in 2019. And um, he then decided to go to Surrey. Um, where they had a, a good campaign after an awful Bob Willis trophy. Mm. But here they had a tremendous campaign where they built uh, so much momentum going forward, got to finals day, and then sadly it, it didn't happen in the final. They had to bowl with a wet ball. And to be fair, totally fair, 
to uh, Nottinghamshire, they they outplayed uh, Surrey in that final. Yeah. Yeah. So we were very pleased, very pleased to see him back on the park. Um, and then to get a call up in the, he was close to a call up last winter, funny enough, in the T20 New Zealand. Uh, but they said, no, keep keep going. Um, and I know Ed Smith had a very kind word. And I think Owen Morgan did. And, and some of the coaching, Chris Silverwood, he knows well. Chris Silverwood rates Reese very highly, knows him from his Essex days. Yep. Um, and uh, he's, you know, he did very well in that Ireland series, in the practice games, in the, in the bubble, in the matches that he played. He only played one England game, but nonetheless, the whole bubble, the, the month they were there, he did himself uh, some, he did himself very well. And he's been selected to go to South Africa for the ODIs and the T20s, which I, I know he is so proud and pleased and so excited. You, uh, you've done some media work as well, working for the BBC pre-COVID. Do you, have you ever had to commentate on Reese? Yeah, lots, lots actually. Back in his Essex days, during his Hampshire days, during his Sussex days, during his... Uh, actually, I haven't done it for Surrey. Haven't done it for Surrey, um, but he, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm honest as the day's long. Uh, if it, I'll, I'll criticise him if he needs criticising, and if it's good bit of bowling. And of course, I suppose being brutally honest, what I try and give, I'm not necessarily going to. When I commentate for the BBC, and what a great service he is, you know, every ball of every professional game is live and you can listen to it, which is a great service. And it's very popular because not everybody can, can get to cricket these days. Um, so from my point of view, I'm probably not out of the Henry Blowfield bracket of commentary. I can't describe the number 13 going down the Wellington Road or a pigeon. But what I can do is my credibility is the cricket because I've played the game. I know the dressing room, I know the emotions, I know what's going through the batsman and the bowler's head. I know everything about what's going on in the park. So I like to think I can contribute in that area and, uh, and I, it's something that I'm so proud of and I enjoy um, because uh, how can I say I'm a badger. I am a cricket badger and I just enjoy the game. Whoever it is, if we occasionally drive somewhere in the car, if I'm driving, we'll stop and watch a bit, uh, watch an over or two of whatever it is. It could be Mickey Mouse playing cricket, but I'll be watching it. And then the missus might tut, but she will be comfortable by the end of the over. <laughs> or if we pop in for a cup of tea. How did you get into the, the BBC commentary? Right, that dates back to my playing days. Um, some of your older listeners will remember there was a thing called Rapid Line. I think it was to do with British Telecom. I think you could pick the phone up, dial a number, a respected 0898 number, <laughs> ring it up, and you would um, listen to the commentary. And there was a Zimbabwean, coincidentally, called Bob Nixon that used to cover the Essex games. And I did. I was one of those lads in the dressing room that could get bored easily. And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd upset someone or Pring, Derek Pringle and I and Neil Foster would argue that, listen, Derek Pringle, Neil Foster and I would change quite near to each other. And you've got NASA as well. 
And if you said it's blue, he'll say it's turquoise. He'd say it's Man City blue. Somebody else would say it's sky blue. You know what I mean? Navy blue. So I would leave the dressing room. I would go and sit with Bob Nixon and listen to Bob. Or Bob used to say to me, can you help me out? Because I'm doing it for six hours a day. Do you want to do an hour with me? So I would do an hour. And again, like the cricket festival, like my teaching, it's important to me that I infuse people. If I'm on the radio and some, sadly someone will turn off, I've lost. I, it is our job today uh, as a BBC commentator, I feel that it is our job to make the game sound interesting, to sell the game. Now, you know, six hours of turgid cricket sometimes can be a bit boring. You know, if there's 180 runs scored in six hours in 100 overs, oh my God. You know, we've, we might go and talk about a bit about food, a bit about gardening, but it's important to enthuse the listener and make them say, I want a bit more. That was interesting. That was good cricket. And plus the fact that I have the knowledge of the game and inside knowledge of the game, which I think really does give me a slightly different angle. And I mean, you talk about that inside knowledge of the game. When when you were released back in '94, um, you were the first person ever to suggest about match fixing. Is that something which has followed you around? Yeah, I think it has. It's cost me jobs, definitely. Um, I don't think cricket helps the whistleblower, or uh, that's how I'm bracketed for doing what I did. I was in a paper battle between the News of the World, if you remember Bruce Grobbler. And the Sunday Mirror had the story uh, about cricket match fixing, but they couldn't quite dot the I's and cross the T's. And I was put in a position which, uh, in the end, I had to, to do it uh, in a difficult position. And I was happy to tell the truth. It happened. Uh, people don't like talking about it. Um, and they feel it's quite a long time ago now, so nothing should be mentioned, it should be dropped. But what I found it quite interesting that there were one or two poachers turned gamekeepers who moved around our cricket world. Um, and I, I stand by everything I said. And in fact, after I said what I said, I got a lot of messages, phone calls, and in fact, uh, letters from other players not from the Essex-Lancashire game, but about other games dating back to the 1970s. So um, when I find it interesting that people are very happy to point the finger at the subcontinent, but actually, uh, if we wanted to, uh, and I don't think we, there is a desire to, to investigate any, anything further because it's a, a little bit awkward at times for some. Um. And you, um, I mean, you coached in Zimbabwe. I've spoke to Alan Butcher and Tatenda Tabu. They talked a lot about, you know, corruption and interference in cricket in Zimbabwe. Did you experience that when you were? I didn't actually. Not, not at all. I was very lucky. Um, I, I was sort of eighty nine to ninety two. They were a pretty talented side. Mm. I think uh, prior to me was um, Barry Duddleston in charge of Zimbabwe and after me was John Hampshire who took them into test match cricket. Um, I think it, the administration of cricket in those days was a lot easier. Um, I mean, I do remember um, 
it was interesting. I do remember a conversation I had with uh, at South Church Park with Doug Insole and Graham Gooch. We got out our cars once at uh, on the morning of a game, and I can remember Doug, who was on the ICC in those days, was talking to Graham Gooch about, and this was after the World Cup, uh, where England beat uh, England lost to Graham Gooch's England side lost to Zimbabwe, and I remember them saying. You know, should Zimbabwe get test status? And, and Gucci actually said, uh, if I scored 100 against him, I wouldn't necessarily think of it as a test match century. And I remember interjecting and saying, hang on, hang on, that's not a reason not to give him status. Um, you know, like New Zealand with Australia, like Sri Lanka with India, at the time it was important with South Africa just coming back into uh, world cricket, from isolation, it was important that Zimbabwe was given an opportunity to try and develop their cricket on the backs of next door South Africa. So anyone that used to go to India used to go pop into um, Sri Lanka or Ceylon in, before they went into India. And likewise, if they're going to go to South Africa now being readmitted, it was a good idea to go and have a practice few days before they take a two hour flight down to South Africa. And I think that was quite important. But um, the one difference between, say, Sri Lanka and Zimbabwe, or in fact, Afghanistan, Af Afghanistan and Sri Lanka have a depth of cricketers. Zimbabwe doesn't. And that's a process of re-education. Uh, over the years, um, I think you've seen a little bit in, in, in South Africa. Uh, the, the Africans prefer football and it's, it's still quite a challenge getting them into cricket but you know um, a, lot of, a lot of the top schools have black Africans and they start to play the game of cricket so I think that is a good sign but there just isn't the depth of cricketer in Zimbabwe compared to say Afghanistan and Sri Lanka. You talk there about developing the game you've been very vocal in your uh, you know desire for the 100 competition which you know divides opinion why do you think why do you think there's a need for that competition right um yeah it's been quite a challenge uh, i get uh, quite a lot of stick about it from the traditional look firstly firstly let, let's just lay down some facts here we play more cricket in this country than anyone else we used to play even more we used to play seven days a week. We don't necessarily play seven days a week today, but the idea is to have more practice days and a travel day. Um, we still play more cricket than anyone else. There is enough cricket to go around in this country to suit all people's likes or the different formats of the game. T20 is good. T20 serves a fantastic purpose. We have 18 teams. Now, this is going to be quite controversial. People don't like me saying this. But because we have 18 teams, we dilute the quality. Which other franchise competition, which other domestic competition has 18 teams? Does the West Indies? Do South Africa? Does a Big Bash? Do, do state cricket in New Zealand or Australia? No, not at all. Even Imran Khan has talked about Pakistan, who had so many uh, domestic teams with all their banks and their uh, air, airplane companies and PIA and whatever. So he said, I just want you to have six. Now, where's that come from? 
he's thinking along the same lines. When you have more teams, you dilute. Look, I'm not su suggesting for one minute that Derbyshire or Somerset or Essex should be binned. I had a career in county cricket. I want county cricket to survive. I want all 18 teams to survive. But we can't get away from the fact that, that, that in the last 10 years, five nearly went to the wall. And that is with a good Sky deal. Now, you might say Sky's not a good deal because it's taken it off free-to-air television. I agree, but the money has been massively important. So therefore, whilst the money has been good, five of the 10 count, uh, 18 counties nearly went to the wall. So the new deal, which I, ca I can't remember how much, but it's a lot, a lot of money. The next one might not be so good, but this new deal for TV, which is basically England cricket, is a good thing because yes, it involves the 100, and I come on to the 100 in a minute, but it involves all 18 counties getting a lot of additional money and maybe it's needed during this post-COVID times, pre and post. What I will say is the counties, I think, are getting over 3.8 million annually. Tell me which business gets a handout from the central pot of 3.8 it might even be 4.2 million and they're still struggling so look post-covid is a different time now the thermometers are different and i hope all 18 survive i seriously believe there is enough cricket to go forward but rt20 because we have 18 teams it dilutes the ability i'm afraid yes you'll get you know we get in the, in the quarterfinal, we'll have eight teams, the eight best teams, but that means 10 are struggled. It's 10 of probably a lot less. And we see some poor cricket, and I'm gonna be a bit technical here as well. Some of the smaller counties struggle with their squares because they have to play the TV games in the middle because of the obvious. And we play on some very poor services surfaces in our T20. We don't at the beginning, but by the time we get to later August and September, the wickets are tired and the test match grounds have more resources. They have bigger squares. So I expect the 100 to be played on better surfaces. The other thing about our T20 is people say we've you've got poor teams with good players in them. What the 100 or the new competition will do, we will pull better player, players, you'll get a better product. You're gonna get better overseas players as well. Um, I just don't think two divisions for our T20 is any good because we've already seen with the Bob Willis Trophy, we're, not, we're heading down the conference route at the moment because no one wants to be in division three 
and no and, and, and division two teams in the county championship are moaning because they're never going to win the championship because they're ne they're a season away from getting into division one should they get promoted so i think the ecb i tend to think at the moment they're listening to the lesser and perhaps since we've seen the move away from colin graves to this Mr. Watmore coming in, perhaps he's listening to the lesser teams. I mean, I don't understand why we needed to go from 10 teams in Division 1, which was hugely competitive, which every first division game was an event, which was a top-level cricket match. Why we went to 10 in this aborted year this year? Why did we go to 10? to appease some of the lesser teams who wanted to try and be part of Division One. My feeling is I support Colchester United. I'd like them to play Liverpool and Man United as well. But you have to earn the right to go up the divisions to get in the Premiership. And I felt that was the case in the Division One of eight teams of County Championship cricket. But division, having two divisions in the T20, people sort of clutching at straws at that one. No, you'll have a Division 1 and Division 2. You'll still have goodish players in Division 2, but they're in a poor team. That's the harsh reality. So I'm, I'm in favour of a new competition. I was surprised, you by it being a 100 ball. I felt, I predicted, I proposed it might be something that you and me and millions of people have played in. It might be in the old fashioned 15 8 ball, mm. where you have eight overs from one end, you choose whichever end you want to start, eight straight overs from one end, seven from the other, but you still have 15 8 balls, which means a, a currency of 120 balls. And I thought that that was where maybe where we would go for this new competition, keeping the 120 T20, 15 eight balls, keeping the currency of 120 balls. But I was surprised. I had to think long and hard about it. But in essence, I welcome something that will potentially, because of the TV deal, it will keep all 18 counties afloat imminently imminently we don't know what the vista is going to be like in five in ten years time in ten years time you might find sadly a couple of counties have not been particularly managed well and like any other business may struggle well we can't we can't account for that that's going to be terribly sad but meanwhile imminently they're going to get an awful lot of money, much more money than they've ever had before. And that will help them keep them afloat imminently. So I embrace it. I think our T20 doesn't sit on the world's top table. It doesn't because of the 18 teams. And I think this is an opportunity for our cricket to be on the world stage. This will, the 100, I'm not going to... Uh, slag it off I'm going to say I embrace the new competition I was surprised but I welcome it and I do believe this will sit at the world's top table along with the IPL which has been brilliant this yeah. tournament in the UAE and potentially the big bash who have opened up to three overseas play players as well because they don't have 
their home Australian internationals really much in their big bash, sadly. So I'm going to embrace it and I want people to understand that the cricket needs it. And if, if they think they don't, they're living in the 1980s. County cricket isn't what it was like in the 1980s. It's ve a very different animal today. You mentioned the 1980s, obviously, when you played. I always ask this, everyone I talk to, do you have cricket memorabilia from your playing days up around the house or is it hidden away or given away or i i've given a lot away and uh, i must say reese is very good he gives quite a lot away um i've got all kinds of memorabilia actually all my pictures have gone <laughs> they've been replaced by someone younger uh, and someone far more important, an England player with England pictures and things like that, team pictures, tours, uh, celebrations of when he got his cap. Uh, funny enough, Reese got his cap in T20 from Nasser Hussein. And he, no, sorry, Owen Morgan, and he got his ODI cap from Nasser Hussein. And Nasser spoke very nicely, because obviously I played with Nasser. Uh, and he said, uh, you know, he remembers me pushing him around in a pram <laughs> during NASA's playing days, things like that. Um, so we've got, I'll show you actually, we've got various stumps, various stumps from Reese's career, his uh, under-19s World Cup and his debut in the Nat West Trophy for England. Um, we've also got a bat here, here signed, by uh, this is a sort of family heirloom. It's um, signed by Don Bradman's Australian side, together with uh, Wally Hammond and Eddie Painter and Hedley Verity and people like that, Dennis Compton. Um, I've got stuff from my my day, and I've got stuff from Reese's day as well. But most of my stuff is hidden away. I do have three championship uh, winning. Uh, plates, gold plates. Uh, I do remind Reese that he has none yet. Maybe one day. We're very competitive like that. Yeah, I like that. I um, I always do a little eBay search before I interview anyone. And there's actually, if you're missing a photo, someone is selling one on eBay of you at the moment for eighteen pounds eighty. So you can you can. I go, thought you were going to say ninety nine p. No, eighteen pounds eighty. Eighteen pounds done for a photo of you on eBay at the moment. You want to you know, dig really? some out? Yeah, dig some out and get them on there. Tell me, there's one of Reese that's only seventeen pounds fifty. Go oh, on. there's there's many of Reese for a lot cheaper than that. <laughs> love it, love it, love it. I'm oh, great, great time telling him that. <laughs> um. What advice would you give to a young player starting out on their career now, Dom? Oh, a young player today. Well, let's, let's take a younger kid. Let's say somebody with ambition. Um, I'd like him to mostly understand that most days are not going to be brilliant. You know, you're not going to pick up five wickets every day. Most days you're going to bowl 20-odd overs, pick up naught for 70, but you do a fantastic job bowling up the hill, into the wind, at the unglamorous end. The game of cricket is fun. He's got to make sure he enjoys it. You spend an awful lot of time playing cricket, including the club man. You know, you turn up at, you start travelling at 10 and you get home at 10 at night. 
you've got to enjoy it. You've got to make sure you go there with an open mind that you're going to enjoy the day, contribute, um, and certainly enjoy the opportunity that you've got to play with friends. Uh, playing with friends is the, probably the real reason you play. Yes, you love the game, but you enjoy the camaraderie of the, the opportunity of the dressing room and the fun. Um, in rugby and, and football, it's 40 minutes each way, and it happens like that. It's impact. Cricket can happen six days, six hours, five days. So very different attitude. And you've, yeah, I've got to enjoy it. Most importantly, enjoy it. Work hard. You've got, there's no shortcuts for working hard, whether it's your fitness, whether it's your skill base. And you, you, you never stop learning. Um, not being funny, I suppose, when I go away with... Uh, I take these tours in the winter to go to places where England play. And it's a great honour to, to, to be able to introduce touring to some of the guests that I take. And we often have a guest from, say, one of the England camps that come along. And, uh, and talking to them, you never stop learning. Even at my age of 57, you still never stop learning. And I think the moment you stop learning will be a, will be a sad day. So... Just keep being a sponge, taking everything in, all the uh, advice offered by different stars, different players. It may be your favourite player, it may not be, but the, the one who may not be still may give, give you something that's worth being a sponge. Take it in, use it or not use it, but take it in and learn. And what about, and finally, what about a player coming to the end of their career? You know, they've got their retirement in front of them what would you say to them what advice make sure you feel lucky because i think when you're playing the game you don't always feel lucky because it's all you ever know so you just think this is every day this is how it happens you're very lucky but um make sure i always felt it was good to talk to the punters the supporters the members everyone like that make sure you Take an opportunity to be kind and nice because, I, for instance, something that I, I learned as a youngster, when I was playing cricket, people would want to know about me or want to know about Reese. And I, as a, as a fatherly piece of advice, I always say to Reese, ask them about them because I, I think you'll find they have a different reaction to you if you ask about them, their day, their life, their family, their cricket. Yes, they're coming to speak to you because they want to talk to you, but actually try and reverse it, because I think you'll find that they will take you very differently if you ask about them. So be kind, be generous, and build relationships you never know when they might become useful. Don is a man who is clearly very proud of his achievements both on and off the field. He's forged a successful career off the pitch and in so many areas too. The way he's diversified is really impressive. He's also so clearly very proud of his son Reese. And while I'm recording this, Reese is out in South Africa preparing for the T20 series there. I really hope he gets a game and good luck to him if he does and I hope your dad gets to watch with you soon. Next time on the Back to the Pavilion podcast, I talk to a player who overcame more than most to even have a career in cricket, and then had to retire early due to a back injury. 
Since then, he's found a new career in yoga, well-being and mindfulness, an area that's very, very close to my heart. So join me next time as we welcome Lewis Hatchett back to the pavilion. So that's all from me for today. Please do stay in touch. Tweet me at Lloydzilla. Take care of yourselves and others. See you next time. Bye-bye for now.